0: all right Sarah so this one we this was a sweet one and uh uh, we talked to (laughs) Professor Susie Swithers about sweeteners artificial sweeteners right
1: artificial sweeteners and how they compare to regular old sugar and well I don't want to give too much away right no spoilers but this is it's it's interesting
0: it can't tell them all. it, can't tell them all because I want to listen to it. But yeah, it's very interesting. She told us the names of different sweeteners. I love yes. that. And the different uh, and how they determine it's a sweetener. I'm going to make you listen for that one. Uh, right. Wasn't what I thought. it so uh, <laughs> there were sweeteners and even threw in some side effects of different things like this and he gave mm-hmm. us suggestions on here uh what to do i gotta admit it did not like those suggestions at all they fell a little too close to home and uh telling me i can't have all my sweet stuff i don't like hearing that but uh it's makes sense it definitely makes sense to me better in the long run Welcome to Superheroes of Science. I'm
1: Steven. And I'm Sarah. We co-host Science from the Experts. Our guests are professionals doing cutting-edge science right now.
0: They are experts in their field discussing what they know best. So listen up and learn real science
1: from real people. Subscribe now and stay informed of our latest episodes and show your support. Joining us today on Superheroes of Science, we are pleased to welcome Susie Swithers. Susie is is the Associate Dean for Faculty Affairs in the College of Health and Human Sciences, and also a professor in the Department of Psychological Sciences here at Purdue University. So welcome and thank you so much for being here. I'm happy to be here.
0: We know, uh, especially with those titles, that you're a, a very busy person and probably not easy to pin down these days. And so we really appreciate you taking time to share some of your expertise with us in the world.
2: Well, I, I like to. I think that's one of the fun things about doing science is when you can get out of the lab and sort of explain to people, hey, you know, what we're doing here might actually matter, um, even though it, it's sometimes kind of a curvy road till you get to that point.
0: <laughs> well, that's fair enough. That's, now, you, uh, the, one of the things we're going to talk about is, is the artificial sweeteners with you. Now, is this something you've been doing research in for some time now?
2: Um, yeah, so believe it or not, it's been a little over 15 years since we first started to look into um, artificial sweeteners. They have lots of names. So artificial sweeteners, high-intensity sweeteners, non-nutritive sweeteners, they, they, they all mean slightly different things, um, and I, I tend to use them interchangeably, um, but, you know, they're a little different from one another.
0: Oh, fair enough, fair enough. Now, you I guess, I mean, heck, 15 years ago, the only thing I knew that had them maybe was diet drinks.
2: Yeah, so um for a long time, up until probably about the the mid-90s, that was the primary place that you found them. Um and um one of the big things that happened to change that was the introduction of a um of a high-intensity sweetener called sucralose. Um, And sucralose is better known by most people as the sweetener in Splenda. Um, And one of the big differences between Splenda and earlier sweeteners is that Splenda is relatively heat stable. So earlier sweeteners like aspartame or saccharin, if you try to bake with them, for example, they don't survive that process very well. So they're no longer sweet. So the biggest market was in in beverages, which were primarily served cold. Um, Sucralose, because it's more heat stable, now it could be put into all kinds of products.
1: With the invention (laughs) of sucralose then is, so you're saying that's kind of when, then we started seeing it expand into other products? That's right. So.
2: Before then, as I said, it was mostly in beverages. Now it's it's in everything. And so um, I sort of joke that you have to have a PhD to be able to identify all the products that contain um, these high intensity sweeteners. It's it's There have been instances in which the products have made their way into my house. And that uh, um, isn't because people weren't looking just because they didn't quite know. So for example, there are English muffins, um, high protein English muffins that have both sucrose, which is regular table sugar Mm -hmm. and sucralose as an ingredient.
0: I, I, I feel like they try to trick us into getting this stuff because those names, it's, yeah, I have to ask my wife all the time, I'm like, all right, what is this? And she's like, no, and so, okay.
2: <laughs> right, and so um, there, there at, in the U.S., there are, oh man, six or seven, I, I don't do the counting, um, the, the FDA um, has approved um, a relatively small number of these products, so I can just tell you what those are if people want to be able to look on a label. So saccharin, saccharin has been around for a long time. Um, it's the sweetener that's used in sweet and low. Um, uh, aspartame um, is another one, which is the sweetener that's in NutraSweet. And just to kind of give some context here, so um, saccharin is somewhere between 200 and 7 times sweeter than sugar. Um, Aspartame is around 200. There is a sweetener called asulfame potassium. Um, That's a sweetener that's about 200 times sweeter than sugar. It's usually not used on its own. So many of the high intensity sweeteners are in combination. So you'll find um, Ace-sulfame potassium or Ace-K as we refer to it, it's usually combined with another sweetener. Um, so it's, it's typically not by itself. And then sucralose, which is Splenda, which is somewhere around 600 times sweeter than, than um, sugar. Um, there are a couple of relatively newer um, sweeteners. They're not in very many products that we know of, but they're so sweet that theoretically um, if they're in a product, they might be in such small quantities that they would not need to appear on the label based on the FDA requirements. And those include um, neotame, which is somewhere between seven and thirteen thousand times sweeter than sugar, and advantame, which is about twenty times, th- twenty thousand times sweeter than sugar. So part of the way these things work is that they're just much sweeter than sugar. So they're in in the products in really tiny um, amounts, um, which is is why they effectively don't give you any calories. Um, Then there are also other kinds of sweeteners that are not technically FDA approved, but they've gone through a process that's known as generally recognized as safe. So these are um, plant-derived sweeteners, so they're plant extracts that have been concentrated, and those include um, things that come from uh, stevia plants. So stevia may be something that people um, are familiar with. There are really a a few different um, glycosides um, that are derived from stevia. That have been allowed into food products through this GRAS process. And that includes um, uh, something called rebauticide A or Reb A. That's how it'll often show up on the label, um, or stevia side or rebauticide D. Sometimes it'll say a stevia extract. Um, so those are somewhere between 200 and 400 times as sweet as sugar. Um, And then there are also monk fruit extracts um, which um, can show up either as monk fruit extracts or um, there's a a Chinese name um, which I'm Blocking on, and will probably mispronounce anyway. I think, yeah. So I don't want to do that because I don't want to. I, I don't want to say something unintentionally offensive. Um, um, but they that they might also be labeled as side five, and that's somewhere between 100 and 250 times sweeter.
0: Now, it, you keep saying that it's so much like 200 times sweeter than sugar, but how is that decided? That it is. I mean obviously there's some kind of test or benchmark it's, it's not you're just having somebody like sarah and stephen test things like oh yeah so
2: well yeah believe it or not they're actually sensory panels that are that there are people who have expertise they're trained to be sensory testers for all kinds of things um including for you know foods and so what happens is that um is you kind of train people using sucrose solutions um, to, you know, here's this, this is what, a, you know, a 10% solution looks like, this is what it tastes like. And each individual person will then get trained to do this. And then you can give them these sweeteners. And then you ask them, you know, give them different concentrations. You have mm-hmm. them kind of match, like, how sweet does this taste to you and they'll be able to say, oh this tastes like a 20 percent solution that that kind of thing so that's also why there are ranges because um these sweeteners um the way they interact with our sweet taste receptors is different from the way other sugar you know real sugars do and individual people have differences in their ability you know the extent to which they respond to the to different sweeteners so it's not an exact science, but that's
1: why you get these sort of ranges. I think that is so fascinating. That it, that it's the way that your it, it appears on your tongue, and then it sends those messages then to your brain. And how how is that different with these artificial sweeteners compared to just normal sugar?
2: They're just, so, so we have sweet taste receptors. This is the other thing that's really sort of fascinating, you know, 20, 25 years ago, we thought we only had sweet taste receptors on our tongue. And it turns out that they're everywhere in our body. They're in our tongues, they're in our intestines, they're in our pancreas, just, yes, yes. And so, um, one of the ideas behind these sweeteners originally is like, you know, the only place that they're going to produce any effect is on your tongue, because that's the only place you have the receptors. So, the reason why they work so well is they're just much better at binding to these receptors. So, they use the, some of the same processes that sugar would, it's just that they can make that receptor, you know react, respond at a much lower concentration than sugar requires. They they sort of fit into the binding pockets of the receptors and turn them on. Um, you know, it takes, you know, one two hundredth as much for Splenda to do that compared to sucrose. So if you get the little packets, sorry to interrupt, Stephen, but if you have a little packet of these things, if you look at the ingredients carefully, what you'll see is that it's typically the first ingredient listed is typically something like maltodextrin or dextrose, which is either a starch or a sugar, and then the sweetener. And that's because the amount that you need is so tiny that if you put that in the packet... And people ripped it open, they could like spill it on the table, or they would say, There's nothing in here. It's a really tiny amount. So, th- most of what's in those packets is the filler that allows you to like empty out the sweetener and mix it in. Stephen, I love your face. You're just like, <laughs> that just <"Whoa."> blows. <laughs> I
1: know. It does. Because yeah. I've opened those sweet and low, you know, there's all the different colors at diners and things. And it's right. in here. I want to see. And they all look like they have the same amounts. But. Well, and they do because
2: they have the filler in them. And so the, you know, the filler has obviously been mixed together with the sweetener so that they're not separating from one another. But if you go, I know that with, with Splenda, um, that there are like the baking versions where you can buy a bag where you can like scoop it and measure it the same way. Well, that's mostly filler with just a tiny little bit of the sweetener.
0: I feel like I've been conned, and then part <laughs> of me is just amazed that you, you're telling me such a little teeny fraction of that is the actual sweetener. Or part of me is just amazed that something that small could sweeten compatibly to my sugar.
2: Well, and and I mentioned already, um, you know, Ace sulfame is um, a sweetener that's very rarely on its own in a product. And that's because um, even though they mimic sweet, you know, they, they mimic sugars, none of them are exactly like sugar. And so sugar itself has not only is its sweetness um, sort of perceptibly different, there's sort of a roundness and like the, the time it takes for you to taste the sweetness and how long it lasts differs between sugar and these other sweeteners. <laughs> Um, And so that's sometimes why they're combined is because they each bind with the receptors slightly differently. Um, And they all also have, I don't know, kind of an extra or or off taste almost. And so sometimes they're combined with one another to sort of allow blotting out or, or, you know, minimizing those kind of off tastes. Um, So some of them may have like a metallic taste or a bitter taste or sort of, you know, kind of an, almost like a licorice taste and that that's sort of why they end up mixed
1: together is to to, to balance that out. My mom and I have commented before just trying different things like that kind of has a, a bitter taste to it. So it's it's nice to hear that it's not just us. This, no. no, it's <laughs> this not <thing>. just you. <laughs> so how is our brain or how are we perceiving these differences then? And, and what's it doing to our bodies? I, I don't know what we can say. I'm not sure what to ask exactly. Yeah, so um so
2: work in my lab has been, um, we, we've used an animal model. Um, we, we use rats for lots of reasons, um, primarily because our animals, I know for certain, have never had experience with these sweeteners before we give it to them, and at this point, um, if you're an adult in the U.S., the chances that you've Never had exposure to one of these things is really small. So one of the things we haven't talked about is that um, the these sweeteners show up in toothpaste, for example. Um, And so there's there's a a study that was done um, by other people, some some colleagues um, of mine, uh, that actually looked at blood levels of sucralose um, in um, breast milk of women. And they asked the women whether or not they consumed high intensity sweeteners and sucralose was showing up in the breast milk, even of women who said that they didn't use them. And so one suspicion would be that it might, for example, be in their toothpaste, or perhaps they're chewing sugarless gum, things that people don't Mm -hmm. think about because they're not consciously consuming them, Mm -hmm. but where you could end up um, having, you know, some of it uh, end up in your body. So we like to use animals because we have much better control over um, what they're doing. And so not just my lab, but in other labs, we found, uh, ha- have found um, lots of what you might call um, unexpected consequences of consuming these. So th- the general idea was that they would taste really sweet and they wouldn't deliver any energy or calories. And so that would be a good thing. Um, But there's an old commercial that says it's not nice to fool mother nature. And so, you know, how did a psychologist start to look at artificial sweeteners? Well, um, one of the most famous uh, things that people know about in psychology is often Pavlov and how, you know, Pavlov's dogs would salivate in response to things like a bell that predicted that they were going to get food. So, So Pavlov was not really a psychologist, but he he discovered principles that are very fundamental to psychology. He was a digestive physiologist. And what he, he laid out was that we learn about the consequences of eating food and our brains produce these reactions that are designed to help us digest our food. So the reason that a dog starts to salivate when it thinks food is coming is because saliva contains enzymes that help it break down its food. Um, And there are all kinds of other less visible reactions beyond salivation. There are hormones that are released, you actually can see that people's body temperature goes up a little bit because you actually have to expend energy to get the energy out of your food. So we refer to all of these reactions as cephalic phase responses. They're they're responses to food that happen before you actually get it into your stomach and your intestines. And so um, we were interested in the, the question of, well, what happens when you get a cue like, this tastes sweet that has always been followed by sugar and energy. Mm-hmm. So your brain is like, okay, I'm going to get this. You're prepared. You release hormones, you get ready for energy. Well, now you introduce a, one of these sweeteners, your, your mouth says, Ooh, this is sweet. Sugar and energy is about to show up. And then it doesn't. And so what we know about learning is that if you present this cue and it's not followed by what it's supposed to be followed by, then your body makes adjustment. It's like, wait a minute, you know, I thought that sugar was going to show up, but I didn't get any energy and I didn't get any calories. Maybe that sweet tastes, not such a great cue anymore. So, it, you know, if Pavlov rang the bell and then stopped giving the food, then eventually the dogs didn't salivate. They waited till the food showed up. And so we think that's the same kind of thing. Certainly in our animals, we can demonstrate that what happens is that once you've had experience with these high intensity sweeteners, your response to regular sugars is not as strong or as big as it used to be. So that's where, become, that's where the issue comes in is that we have sometimes the sweet taste is followed by energy and it would be really helpful for us to know that. We can gear up our metabolism, we can release the appropriate hormones, but sometimes it isn't. And if we've done that and then the sugar doesn't show up, our brains, our bodies has to kind of scramble to, to then do that. So, so the, the evidence that we have from my lab it suggests that that's kind of what happens, is that once the animals have gotten this experience, with the high-intensity sweeteners, their responses to real sugar are not as strong or as fast as animals who've never had the the artificial sweetener. Um, It's more difficult to directly ask those kinds of questions in people, so we don't know whether that happens in people or not. But if you look at at kind of long-term studies in people, and most of these have been done in people who are drinking diet beverages because that's really where they were um, at least up until 15 to 20 years ago. So there, there are studies that have followed cohorts of people. Now it's important to understand these aren't experimental studies. And so there are lots of things that could differ. But if you look at people who say that they do drink diet sodas, um, and this is typically at least one a day, and you compare them to people who said they don't drink diet sodas, and you follow them out over 10, 15, 20 years, the diet soda consumers have been shown to be at increased risk for things like the development of diabetes, heart disease, stroke, dementia. So the, the human data in diet soda consumers um, doesn't really show any evidence that they're, they're kind of helping people avoid these problems um, later in life. Um, and, and instead, they suggest that they might be, you know, increasing the risk for developing these same things um, in, in a way that's, that's, you know, very similar to what we know about what regular sodas do. So my, my, my take home message, um, people always ask me, was well, it better if I drink a regular soda or a diet soda? And the answer is no. <laughs> so, you know, that's part of, part of the other thing that's happened is that, you know, when I was a kid, having a soda every day, was it just like, we didn't do that. Um, but I think it's pretty clear that having a soda every day is not a healthy lifestyle. Um, That doesn't mean, you know, we shouldn't ever have, you know, a sweetened beverage, but we shouldn't really be having sweetened beverages every single day. It's, it's, you know, probably not great.
1: It's a a treat. It's a a treat. Yes.
2: And and I I like to make the analogy of um, most adults wouldn't sit down to dinner and pour out a bag of, you know, Skittles, for example, on their plate. Right. So, Mm -hmm most adults will be like, yeah, you don't have like a candy bar with your dinner, but that's really what what a soda is. It's a candy in a can. And so filling, you know, so it, it's just, we we tend not to think about them that way. And so um, I, I suspect that's how we sort of crept into the point where people are walking around, you know, drinking these things.
0: Okay. Psychologically, because I, I holiday time first year time stuff like that and that's where we are now we'll get into a holiday and we're getting ready to people be making resolutions and it's it's i think there's an official resolution quitter day or something like that (laughs) or uh, i think it's in the first month or something but um it it's if i'm someone who drinks a lot of sugar and I want to stop that and I'm like, okay, well, I'll switch over to diet drinks because that will help me break my sugar habit. But well, now we're, we're going to potentially have uh, bad health problems down the road because of those. What, psychologically, it's it's like, I feel like that addiction is there. And uh, I can say that because I am so totally addicted to sugar. Um, I'm not talking about someone else, I'm talking about Steven. Uh, <laughs> Everyone hey, I work yeah. with brings candy for me because um, they know didn't <laughs> <Steve's> grab <getting> grumpy. <laughs> but um, psychologically, how, do, how does a person go about um, breaking that pattern? It, it's like you said, how do we turn that into, okay, instead of stopping for a pop every day on the way to work or on the way home or whatever, it, how do we psychologically condition ourselves not to do that? Because it seems like if we just break something off, it, we go back to it. We go back to it so much harder.
2: Yeah. Right, and I think that that's part of it is is not thinking about never having the stuff. Um, because if you make something forbidden, then it becomes more attractive. And like everything else, it's it's all about the amounts. Um, and um, so you know, part of of the way I think about it now is that for us to kind of as a, as a society make progress on this this is really a policy level issue. So it's very difficult to go out and find foods that do not have really high levels of, of sugar or one of these sweeteners in it. And so I mentioned, you know, high protein English muffins, English, not, not blueberry muffins, not Like something that we would normally think of being sweet, but our our food supply um, is so sweetened that we now have to have the sucralose in these things to to meet our palate. So one of the things um, that that tends to happen is that most people think that they eat what they like, but it turns out you like what you eat. So as you become familiar with something, so here's a good example of this. Um, if I were to bring in a, a, you know, a, a container of Vegemite, would you be really excited? No, like most, you know, Americans are just like, oh, that sounds gross. Nevertheless, there are lots of people who love it. And there are people who love it because that's what they're accustomed to eating. It's part of their culture. So food is incredibly cultural, and so we like what we eat. So one of the things that would happen, um, you know, so so the best thing would be go cold turkey. Say I'm you know for five days I'm not going to have any sodas, right? On the sixth day, my guess is when you take a sip of the soda, you're going to be like, wow, this is really sweet. There is this sort of desensitization. That's not always an option. So there are other things that that you could potentially try. Um, One is, you know, a lot of people, they find the first couple sips of their soda really pleasurable, but then they just drink the whole thing because it's there. Yeah. So what you could do is be like, okay, I'm going to have a couple of of this, And then I'm dumping the rest of it down the drain that produces two things. It, it sort of satisfies you in the moment, and then you're throwing away a lot of money. And you may eventually go, wow, why am I spending all this money just for a couple of sips and it may be gradual or it may be the case that you get to the point where you're having a couple of sips three times a day and you don't care that you're dumping the rest of it down the drain, but at least you're not getting as much of it. But, but my um, I have not tested this experimentally, so I can't give you any data on how well this works, but I do think people are sensitive to things like how much does this cost? How much money am I spending on this? That's, so even if you don't decide to change your habits, just track how much money am I spending on this thing. And how much of my time am I spending on acquiring this thing? So um, I, 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 but I think that part of it really is just, you know, deciding what do you want to be doing, right? Uh, You know, what do you want to be eating and drinking? So Are diet sodas um, responsible for the entire epidemic of obesity and diabetes worldwide? Of course not, right? Um, But they're not necessarily a particularly good solution either. So, you know, there are some data in people, for example, where they've done things like they've asked people to drink an extra liter of soda a day, people who don't drink soda. And then they're in an experiment and they're given a liter of soda to drink every single day. Well, it turns out if you do that for six weeks, the outcome is much worse if it's got sugar in it than if it's a diet soda. So in a short term, it's pretty clear that we can demonstrate that there are circumstances in which, drinking regular soda is gonna produce worse effects than drinking diet soda. That doesn't mean the diet soda is good for you. It just means that, um, but I think the real message is don't drink a liter of soda a day. I mean, they, like these, just, yeah. So, you know, as you roll into, you know, maybe you wanna make some changes. I, some of it's just about being thoughtful and, and not automatically assuming that because it's diet, that it's necessarily healthy. Um, and, you um, I certainly do not make the healthiest dietary choices under every circumstance. It's just, okay, I, I know what I'm doing here. I, I understand, um, and people take pleasure out of these things. You know, food is supposed to be pleasurable, we're supposed to enjoy it. So we don't want to have to overthink everything we do. But but I do think that if we're at a point, if somebody's at a point where they're drinking, you know, one or two um, sweetened beverages every single Hey, that's maybe something where it's like, okay, why am I doing this? Is it a habit? What, you know, do I need to drink the whole thing? Can I just get away with having a couple sips of it? And if you can, you know, make it through five days without having a hyper-sweetened beverage and, and being attentive to how much added sugars in the rest of your diet, you might find that the next time you taste the thing that you thought was amazing, you're like wow this is really like this is too sweet for me so kind of training your your tongue to be like okay i don't need as much sweet as i thought to you
0: and i know that's definitely what i found when i when i got off the pot because i was one of those people that drank well <laughs> more than a liter um every day for a while and uh, it, it was tough to to get off of that and get it's with the ice water and stuff but even today when uh, we some of us went out for lunch i I, I thought I, i'm gonna have some sweet tea for my, my lunch today i just i'm just gonna do it and i thought man this stuff is like thick uh, mm-hmm. it's it's like i need to dilute this and so i'm looking for the unsweet So because i'm like this is, wow it's way too much well right. what, too long ago it was just it yeah portions for me for me it's all about the because i I'm, i am i'm tracking calories because I'm trying to you know hit a certain marks and stuff and I'm stingy with what because I I know portions now if you get a small but like today, the small beverage was 24 ounces
2: yeah that was the small
0: Um, and I'm like wait a minute we're we're talking we're talking almost 400 calories if you know if I did a pop or that sweet tea and I could eat quite a bit of good stuff for 400 calories (laughs)
2: I have a Parks and Recreation slide and, and basically the, the, the Parks and Recreation slide um, for for people who are not aware, Parks and Recreation is a show that was set in a fictional town in Indiana. Um, and so we like to work Parks and Recreation references in whatever we can. And um, the, uh, the the town council is having a meeting where they're discussing um, uh, uh regulating beverages, taxing sweetened beverages. And so uh Uh, Leslie Nope, who is the main character, is discussing this, and she's got a display of of cups in front of her, and the regular size, um, it it says regular, and it's 128 ounces, and then there's a child size that's 512 ounces, and someone asks her why it's a child size, um, and the answer is because that's the volume that, you know, if you blended a toddler, that's... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but, but that's part of the issue is that portion sizes are absolutely enormous. And that's one of the factors that contributes to why people have so much trouble, um, you know, regulating healthy amounts of food intake, because we are given, you know, enough food for three or four meals often as a single meal. We're really good at justifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But for me, it's
0: like you no, know, me, it's like oh, the healthy drinks are too expensive. I, I can go across the street and get a forty-four ounce, fifty-nine cents a pop. I'll just do that. And then it's like once I started getting stingy with my budget and talking to myself, all right, quit justifying what you want. I'm like, oh, <laughs> the water's free.
2: Yeah. Well, and you can make. I mean, there are ways to make water more interesting. Um, so for example. Um, you can just buy frozen whole fruit and use that as your ice cube. Um, and so it's not the same as a soda, but it does have some flavor to it. And then as the, you know, ice cubes melt at the end, you've got, you know, some strawberries you can mention or some pineapple or whatever your kind of fruit. Th- those, I wouldn't, you know, grapes be- because they've got the uh, skin on them probably are not going to provide much flavor until you eat them. But I know a lot of, people think water is boring um, uh, and, you know, you can, you can definitely steep your water in the fruits, um, but that reminds me to say that, that, you know, we talk about soft drinks or, or, or sodas or pops, but fruit juices themselves are not necessarily a great option either. They're, they're really um, high sugar. Um, they're not much different than an actual carbonated soda Um, and so, um, and you can kind of prove this to yourself if you're doing like, you know, fresh squeezed orange juice, um, compare how many, you know, how many oranges did you squeeze to get that glass of juice? And would you ever sit down and eat six whole oranges at one time? Probably not, but you can down those, you know, in a minute. So doesn't mean you should never have fruit juice, but it means you shouldn't pretend fruit juice is somehow magically good in
1: the same way that whole fruit is you know, with my kids I get after and they want to grab the largest cup in the cabinet and fill that cup all the way up with their juice but mom it's breakfast and it's my juice but we have these small little juice cups that have plenty <laughs> that's plenty of juice that you need um so yeah. I tell them we'll just cut it with water put some water in it and then you know that so it's, but I, I I was, I wanted to ask about the, um, how we were talking about the artificial sweeteners. How do we have the, um, when we have had artificial sweeteners. So in the past, I know I've had something that's, that's been artificially sweetened. I don't normally choose that. Are we, is there a way that we can, is there a time span that goes by that then that kind of cancels out? Like maybe it resets us or is it, no, we've had it once and it's, and it's just kind of cumulative and I can't answer that question. Okay. So
2: we, we haven't um, explicitly looked at that very in very much depth in, in our animal models. Um, but part of the reason why I think that they are likely to, to be more of a concern, regardless of how frequently you have them, is that this, this kind of interfering with potential learnings, not the only mechanism by which they could produce problems. So other people have looked Um, you know, in animal models, as well as to some extent in people, and shown a variety of of changes that are not necessarily related to to learning. So, for example, they seem to alter the kinds of bacteria that are are in our gut, the gut microbiome. And so that is something that we have only really recently begun to understand how important those bacteria that live in our guts are for for healthy, um, uh, for lots of, of aspects of our health. So mm-hmm. they do seem to potentially alter your gut bacteria. Um, there are other mechanisms um, that involve possibly changing the activity of enzymes in our guts that um, in a system that may prevent us from having something called leaky guts or our, our intestines are designed to absorb nutrients, but to keep some other things out. And so if you damage the integrity of the intestine, then you can get Things that you've eaten, things in your diet that you don't want in your body, those can end up inside of your body. So there are other other possible mechanisms here, and um, and and when we start to talk about in people, um, as I mentioned, the original idea was you take was that you would taste these things, but but they really wouldn't interact with anything else. It's kind of you taste them and then you just get rid of them. But as mm-hmm. we've learned more about where sweet taste receptors are actually located. Um, There's evidence um, in humans that, especially if you do something like have a diet soda just before you get an oral glucose tolerance test. And what an oral glucose tolerance test is, is a way to figure out um, whether or not you have diabetes, whether your body is is able to produce and respond to the hormone insulin. So insulin's a hormone that you need in order to get the sugar um, from your diet um, uh, out of your blood. So we wanna keep your blood sugar levels at an appropriate level. And if you don't produce enough insulin or if your body's not sensitive enough to it, then you ultimately, Get diabetes. And so, an oral glucose tolerance test what happens is that people drink a specific amount of glucose, and then you measure the sugar, the the glucose in their blood after certain periods of time. And so, what's been shown is that people, if you give people a diet soda just before an oral glucose tolerance test, then that can actually affect things like how much insulin is produced which is kind of wild right so if these are things that are inert and just go through your body then why is that happening so we strongly suspect that these sweeteners are doing something in the immediate aftermath and that they're potentially affecting how you're responding to the other foods that you're having even at the same time so i think that um you know answering the question of you know, if I haven't had them in a while, has the learning gone away? Well, we don't know. But even if you haven't had them in a while, they're likely to be producing some of these other consequences.
1: Very interesting. This is <laughs> really <laughs> neat.
0: Now, when people at your house bake, and uh, it, it's a it calls for sugar in a recipe, do you need to put real sugar in? of course okay so
2: i i personally you you um, don't
0: have fake sugars in your house
2: that's right i personally have just never liked the taste of them um i'm i for whatever reason i'm incredibly sensitive to the presence of them um and so i just never use them um for that reason and then once i started to do this work it's like well based on what i know there's not really any benefit to using them and so um you know I, I I feel like the the science sort of tells us that if you're using sweeteners, whether we're talking about sugar or the artificial ones, um, in appropriate amounts, it probably doesn't matter which one you're choosing. Okay. So if you're limiting your sweet food and sweet beverage intake, that means that you're not having, you know. A sweetened beverage every single day, much less with every meal, then it may not matter which of these. And if you're we consuming too much sweet food, it may not matter whether it's sugar or one of these. So again, it's all about amount. So I always bake with um, with regular sh- with real sugar. I have a couple of kind of funny attributes. My kids are older now, but they they definitely. Um, uh, th- they definitely wanted to avoid circumstances in which Mom was going to like be confronted with it with a high intensity sweetener. but there are a couple of sort of funny things that have happened to me. Um, so in order in order to do some of the work, um, I have to be fitted for a real n ninety five mask. and so everyone knows what an n ninety five is. but for them to be, 95 percent efficient they actually have to fit your face and so and they're different um, and we are all much more aware of this than we we probably would like to be at this point um and so there is an office on Purdue's campus that's part of the occupational safety and so you go over and um, they put a mask on you and um they spray something so you've got this sort of hood on and they put a spray inside and they ask you to breathe in. And if it's working, if the mask is well-fitted to your face, then you don't taste or smell anything because it's kept out by the mask. And so the first mask that was put on me um, is just kind of a standard style. It did not fit. And no one told me that they were spraying sack on me so oh, it didn't fit and I was able to taste it and I had this just sort of visceral oh wow like what have you done to me <laughs> kind of thing yeah so um and it was all over my hair and everything so I was sort of tasting saccharin for a very long time um yeah so and then more recently I actually went out to dinner and and ordered a dessert And, you know, it was like a regular dessert. There was no indication that I was doing anything other than ordering um, a a cake with some strawberries and sauce. And I took one taste of it and I was like, this has got an artificial sweetener in it. And so I, me being me, I promise my name's not Karen, but I just, I didn't send it back. I just was like, you you know, Tell me whether there's a high, you know, an artificial sweetener in this. And so they went back to the kitchen and came back and said, "Yeah, there is." And I was like, "No, you might want to just label that." And I—I I swear, I was still tasting that sweetener like half an hour later. Um, and that could be, you know, that could be in my head, but it also could just be the case that it is so potent and they bind so strongly to to our receptors that I really was continuing to taste it. So yeah, I'm a lot of fun to go out to dinner with. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't try to put the diet soda in front of me because i i for whatever reason i just have this very visceral negative reaction to it
0: uh, my wife uh, with one of them uh, she says it makes her heart race she <laughs> says she can taste it and it makes her heart race
2: and so, Yeah, and it's certainly possible um at, like you know I don't know that I would want to lay my life on the line that I could do this 100% of the time, but anecdotally, I'm pretty good at just um, at recognizing whether they're in there or not. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's like I said, the scary part is it's kind of everywhere now. It's more, and it more is, more, right? More, it's where it's, uh, whether it's the artificial sweeteners or uh, the regular sugars, it's it seems like the diet is getting more sweeter and sweeter because the people's palate requires right. more and more sweetness yeah, yeah. and thing. it
2: and it's hard to have the time to make your own foods i mean you know it's uh, it it's, it is difficult and so that's part of the reason why you know i had said that we may be at the point where this is kind of a policy issue and so, if you look at other countries um, like the UK, for example, where they they tax products that have more than a certain amount of added sugar, or you know you, you kind of provide incentives for for companies to produce food that is is lower in some of these things. But of course, what what often happens is when they remove sugar, they add the artificial sweeteners, which. May you know it solves one problem, but may introduce completely different ones.
0: Well, it's a yeah. <laughs> I, I see why you say it. neither one's the option.
2: <laughs> right. So mostly, you know, drink water. Minimize the amount of, uh, of, of of highly sweetened stuff that you're consuming, um, be conscious of it. And as I said, if you know, it's supposed to be, this is supposed to be pleasurable. Um, and so just be aware of what we're doing. I think that, that we have, um, you know, the thing that's happened is that we have such ready access to food and beverage all the time. That a lot of it is is mindless. We're just doing it because it's there, or because we're bored, or because we're avoiding doing something. You know, it's like uh, I really should write this email, or I really should grade those papers. It's like, oh, I know, I'll walk to the vending machine instead.
0: Yeah. <laughs> That's my life, right there. I mean, I feel like you're lecturing me all of a sudden.
2: How'd you know? How did you? Know? We're all there. Yeah. <laughs>
0: that's that's my
1: main avoidance mechanism thank you so much for for all of this information this is wonderful
2: oh good yeah and i and i hope people learn stuff and um you know i'm not the food police uh you know people my main goal is just for people to understand um that that we've certainly been marketed to to believe that the diet versions are good options. Um, And and I think that it's fair to say they're not necessarily good options. Um, And it doesn't mean you should never ever have one of them, but um, you know, there are lots of things that we know that are not good for us and we choose to do them anyway. And I think that, um, that, that people should have those options. People should be able to choose to do things that they know are not so great for them, but they, they need to know that they're not so great.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Science from the Experts from Purdue University Superheroes of Science.
0: If you like this episode, subscribe, give us a positive view and share the love.
1: Hammer down.